O God, our Father, we return our thanks unto thee for all of thy gifts unto us. And we pray that thou wilt receive these tokens which we bring to thee today, and that thou wilt bless them and use them to the glory of Jesus Christ. And we ask, our Father, that thou wilt now cause the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A man with a great heartache came not long ago to my office, and he said there is a problem of communication between me and between my wife. That man was not isolated in his plea that he might be able to share something with his wife and she might be able to share things once again with him. For well, this is a plea that has come to me not only between husbands and wives, but sometimes with a parent who would telephone to me. Will you ask my son or my daughter to come to your office and talk to him? I can't talk to him anymore. And frequently a son or a daughter will come to me and say there is no way by which I can communicate with my parents any longer. And not infrequently a student will come and say, I cannot communicate with my teacher. Members of the faculty will come and say, I cannot communicate with another member of the faculty. And then we see that this breakdown in communication is something that seems to have spread throughout the world. And this, oddly enough, at a time in which there has been such technological revolution, that we can actually communicate with men who stand on the surface of the moon. Why is it? With all of the printed matter, with all of the visual aids and all of the electronic genius that we have, we cannot communicate with one another. And so we resort to the ways men did before they found communication. We snarl at one another. We growl like a dog or we pick up something and throw it, or else we placard an obscenity. It is an interesting item for those who study history that those parliamentary groups who have observed some reverence have been the groups that have lasted the longest. It has been my privilege to sit as an auditor up in the galleries when the House of Lords would be meeting and to see each of these members of that body stand in great politeness and address each other as my right honorable friend. It has been my privilege to stand in the Senate of the United States of America and make a prayer and then sit down and watch the members of the Senate, even though they could be filled with anger at one another, observe rules of decorum in addressing each other so that they could communicate effectively. Whenever we lose respect and reverence, communication breaks down. And whenever communication breaks down, we resort to violence as a means of communication. And violence only begets more violence. The word communication first came into our English language in 1538. 
and it came from a communion service. Because in the communion service, God communicates with us. He has communicated with us by his word in Holy Scripture. He has communicated with us as the Holy Spirit prompts within us a deep sense of our need of him. And then he communicates with us by what we can see and what we can taste and what we can touch and feel. And what God is saying to us is that when you meet to celebrate my supper and the death of my son for you, you are not meeting for some pious fairy tale. This is no fraud, but just as really as you hold that piece of bread in your hand, just that really did one Jesus of Nazareth my own Messiah, my own dear son, die on the cross that you might be redeemed from your sins. Now we can rebel against God in many different ways. We can rebel against him by our apathy and our indifference. There are many people for whom communion could mean less. There are many people for whom church means still even less. There are people who do not take the time to think about the world to come, nor their responsibilities to God. And as a result of it, they are the poor, and they are the ones who must face him one day in the judgment. And so the question arises, if God is communicating to me through this Holy Supper, how may I receive that communication? The catechisms of the church, this is Luther's small catechism. And Martin Luther, in instructing communicants who come to it, little children, says to them simply this, do you believe that you are a sinner? And listen to Luther's answer as he puts it to the children. Yes, I believe it. I am a sinner. How do you know this? From the Ten Commandments, these I have not kept. Are you also sorry for your sins? Yes, I am sorry that I have sinned against God. What do you deserve of God by your sins? His wrath and displeasure, temporal death and eternal damnation. Do you also hope to be saved? Yes, I hope to be saved. In whom then do you trust? In my dear Lord Jesus Christ. Who is Christ? The Son of God, true God and man. What has Christ done for you that you trust in him? He has died for me and shed his blood for me on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. This is how Luther brings his communicants to come and communicate effectively when they come to the Holy Supper. We Presbyterians have what is called a shorter catechism, which is a gold mine of great faith. Listen to what is required of the worthy receiver. It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper 
that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. And so you see it is a supremely serious matter, and it is not for nothing that in the Church of Scotland, for many centuries, before you ever came to the Holy Supper on Sunday, you went to a preparation service in the midst of the week, and their sermons were preached that dealt with the Beatitudes and the Ten Commandments and other great passages of Scripture in which those who professed a belief in Christ were charged to examine themselves to see whether they had grown lukewarm and sickly in their devotion to him. And after they had examined themselves in the light of those searching passages of Scripture, the elders of the church would present to them a token. I hold one of these tokens in my hand. Here in Montreat, which is located right outside of Asheville and Black Mountain, for those of you who are listening on the radio, there is a, a foundation, the historical foundation that has many items of interest for Presbyterians. And one of the interesting things there is the greatest collection of communion tokens on the planet Earth. And the communion token was awarded to those who came to the preparation service. And then you took this token, this is to the Pitcairn Free Church of Scotland, it's made out of pewter. It has 1843 stamped on it. And so you came, and you searched your heart to see whether you were really sincere in your Christian faith. And then after hymns and prayers, the elders of the church presented you with a token. And then on Sunday morning when you came to the church, you presented your token. And when you presented that token, you were allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. And in this way, the sacredness of the feast was maintained, and the genuineness of the people who came to take it was maintained. Now you say, I didn't know that we had a service of preparation. What am I to do if, if I am to rightly receive the Lord's Supper? You can search your own heart now. What if you say, but I've never even been baptized? Let me ask you another question. While theologians tell us that this is not a converting ordinance, that is an ordinance in which people are generally converted to faith in Christ, but rather a sacrament which nourishes us and feeds us once we have made that profession of faith. Nonetheless, the Holy Spirit will work in whom and at what time and how he pleases. And it has often been the case that a man or a woman or a boy or a girl in coming to partake of the Lord's Supper has for the first time seriously considered his or her relationship to Christ.
and has from that moment forward been a truly converted person. And so I read to you a moment ago that passage from the book of the Revelation, which is one of those old communion passages. There is a church, a church to whom Christ himself, the head and king of the church, dictates a letter. And if I could dictate a letter to this worldwide communion Sunday of churches, I think it would surely have to be this one. It's the most stringent. It's the most caustic. It's the most devastating word that Christ ever spoke to the church. For he spoke to a church located on the Meander River, a church that had meandered away from its faithfulness, a church in Laodicea, a rich mercantile area, a church proud of its well-dressed people with their garments that were known around all of that area, a church proud of the gold that filled its coffers and its dignified and educated clergy, a church that was proud that it was in a great medical center where people came for treatment of diseases of the eye, and yet a church which Christ says that he would literally spit out of his mouth because it was neither hot nor cold. You know, it's strange. I know people who like iced tea, and I have been in places in the world where it is not liked. And I know people who like hot tea, and I have been in the places where that is not liked. But I've never been any place in the world where people want tepid tea, that which is lukewarm, dishwatery, which does not cultivate any taste. And this is the words which Christ uses of this church in Laodicea. You say that you are rich, you're naked, says Christ. And what if he came back today? And what if he spoke to this church today on this worldwide communion Sunday? When we literally take so pitifully small our faith in Christ, would you die for Jesus this morning? Just answer that truthfully in your heart. Would you die for Jesus Christ? If you would not, you are not fit to take this supper. No man is fit to communicate who is not fit to die. Remember that. This is not child's play. It's meant for those who have laid their all on the altar for him, who mean it. It's not just a little adjunct to Presbyterianism. It's not just something that you play about when you want some Christian ethics but it's a life-or-death proposition in which all that you have and are, you yield to his lordship. Now, this does not mean that we are perfect. There is none perfect. But how do we come to it? There is a hymn we'll sing in a moment. It was written by Charlotte Elliott. When Charlotte Elliott was 33 years of age, there visited in her home from Switzerland 
a man who had a profound influence on the Church of Christ, and yet, as far as I know, he never preached a mass meeting. His name was Dr. Caesar Milan. He spoke to individuals in little groups and homes about the Bible. He was a guest in a home in the Lake Country in England, the home of a very proper Anglican priest who was himself a great minister whose name was Elliot also. And it was in the first home that Caesar Milan met Charlotte Elliot. Charlotte Elliot was miserable. She was sick a great bit of the time. They were elegant people. And one day Caesar Milan said to Charlotte Elliot, are you a Christian? And she was offended that he should ask her such a question in the proper Victorian age was just not done. And she told him he could mind his own business and walk away from the room. Some days passed, and out in the garden of this lovely home, Caesar Milan sat one day reading his Bible. And Charlotte Elliot came. And she apologized that she had treated the minister rudely. And she said, I suppose I was rude to you because I'm not really sure that I'm a Christian. Can you tell me how I may become a Christian? How can I come to Christ? And Caesar Milan smiled and put both his hands on her shoulders and looked in her eyes. And he said, you come just as you are. And she thought about this. Well, some years went by, 12 years to be exact. Her brother, the successful Anglican minister, had started St. Mary's Hall, a fine school for girls that's still in existence in England. And one day, when they were busy about the house, getting ready to go to the school for some activities there, and Charlotte Elliot had to stay home because she was sick. She began to think that her life was really of no use to anyone, that she was invalid, that she was wretched. And she thought, how could I really be all that Christ wants me to be? And her mind flashed back 12 years to what these Milan had said to her. And she wrote out the words of her hymn that had been sung around the world, just as I am, without one week, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou didst come to me, O Lamb of God, my son. I stood one day in Westwood Coffee in the Lake District in England, and I saw that hymn up on the wall there, because first words slaughtered for us. The chief great comfort in that skin, and she was gone. And if you walk just a little way from where to a time, get out of the place where Wordsworth himself is buried, and where his sister is buried, and where his daughter is buried. And if you look at this flat there, you will see a lamb in the top of the marker at that day. And that lamb is the man of God. Oh, man, uh, I come.